today I'd like to be talking about John chapter 7. And we've reached the 12th part in our series. I'm not going to give you an overview today because the overview is going to take longer and longer and longer as we go through. We're just going to concentrate on this passage. And my goal is to hear Jesus calling us to come and drink. What I'm going to do is to uh, talk about the Feast of Shelters, which was happening at this time, and then do a water theology. What is the theology of water in the Bible? And then, then, um, uh, end with a question is if anyone is thirsty? If anyone is thirsty. So let's start off, shall we, by looking at your handout. And I'd like to look at the, um, the, uh, the section. Let me just get it up on here for you. The first section there on your handout. So this is about going to the Feast of Shelters. After this, Jesus traveled throughout Galilee. He stayed out of Judea because the Jewish leaders wanted to kill him. Now the Jewish Feast of Shelters was near. So Jesus' brothers advised him, please uh, leave here and go to Judea. Sorry. So Jesus' brothers advised him, leave here and go to Judea so your disciples may see your miracles that you're performing. For no one who seeks to make a reputation for himself does anything in secret. If you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his own brothers believed in him. Can you imagine what this is like for Jesus? Like his own brothers at this point not believing. And they're saying, well, go to Jerusalem. But really they don't think he's going to do anything. They just want, like, to expose him. Uh, what would that have felt like to him? We know that later on, he appeared, to, after he was raised from the dead, he appeared to at least one of them, James, and James became, in fact, the leader of all the apostles. And so these brothers did believe in him, at least one of them did later on, but at this point, they didn't. Uh, so Jesus replied, My time has not yet arrived. But for you, any time is good. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I'm testifying about it that its deeds are evil. And this is like, this kind, this verse is one of the ones that kind of overlays the whole passage. This is hatred of Jesus. Like, what's he done? He's healed some people. He's preached some message of love. What's happening that they want to kill him? This does not make sense unless you realize that he's deeply uh, triggering some guilt that's in them, that they know there's a wrong in them that he's triggering. And so this kind of wanting to kill him is underlying the whole thing. Can you imagine what it's like for Jesus? We know that he's God. We know that he's he's got supernatural power. But to know that people want to kill you, it's not a nice feeling, is it? And he's he's just pouring his life out in love for these people and this underlying threat that's there that comes right the way through this passage. What's that like for him to be putting himself in that situation, just continuing holding out in love? Verse 8. You go up to the feast yourselves. I'm not going up to this feast because my time has not yet fully arrived. Uh, Then, or literally, we could translate this, my moment hasn't yet come for coming to the feast. When he'd said this, he remained in Galilee. 
But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then Jesus himself also went up, not openly, but in secret. So that's the, oh, let's just read the the next bit here. So the Jewish leaders were looking for him at the feasts, asking, where is he? There was a lot of grumbling about him among the crowds. Some were saying, he's a good man, but others, he deceives the common people. However, no one spoke openly about him for fear of the Jewish leaders. In this passage, you can see uh, there's there's that symmetry that often John likes to put in his writing where he starts off with an idea and then moves through to a central point and then back to the original idea. You can see that in several places in this passage. There are really three scenes here. The first scene is with his brothers and about going up to the feast. The second scene is in the middle of the feast. And the third scene is on the last day of the feast. So those are the three scenes. Um, we're, um, we're going to then look now at uh, some Old Testament background to this feast. Um, there are different names. Sometimes it's called the Feast of Tabernacles, but it would be more accurate. That we don't use the word tabernacle now. It just means tent or shelter because God told them to remember their time in the wilderness by making these temporary shelters. And it was a fun week. It was like camping. They would, you know, everybody would move out of their house dead. It was their equivalent to Thanksgiving. It was that time of year. Instead of living indoors, they'd make these shelters with branches. And you know, imagine the kids would have fun. If they lived in a city, they'd make them up on the roof. And instead of living indoors for the week, they'd live in these shelters. It was the most popular of all of the feasts that the Jews celebrated. And in fact, people would come from all over to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. It was the biggest one. So Jesus arrives at the feast, and we have uh, an altercation, a disagreement. When the feast was half over, Jesus went up to the temple courts and began to teach. Then the Jewish leaders were astonished and said, how does this man know so much when he's never had formal instruction. So this is the question. What's Jesus' authority here? So Jesus replied, my teaching is not from me, but from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do God's will, he'll know about my teaching, whether it's from God or whether I speak on my own authority. The person who speaks on his own authority desires to receive honor for himself. The one who desires the honor of the one who sent him is a man of integrity and there's no unrighteousness in him. So this is answer to this question about, you know, what authority do you have? Hasn't Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why do you want to kill me? In other words, you know, Moses said, do not murder, but you've got murder in your hearts. The crowd answers, you're possessed by a demon. Who's trying to kill you? Uh, but of course they're wrong because they quite definitely they are trying to kill him. Jesus replied, I performed one miracle and you are, you are all amazed. However, because Moses gave you the practice of circumcision, not that it came from Moses, but from the forefathers, actually it was Abraham it started with, you circumcised a male child on the Sabbath. But if a male child is circumcised on the Sabbath so that Moses' law is not broken, why are you angry with me because I make a man completely well on the Sabbath? So what's going on there? 
Okay, well, according to the law, a child had to be circumcised eight days after they were born. And, of course, if they're born on the, the, the Sabbath, the, they count that as the first day, they would actually, uh, seven, one in seven times, have to be circumcised on the Sabbath. So why was that? Well, in any system of law, there's a hierarchy of laws. There is in our law now, in our, in our, in our society now. You know, so for example, you've got, um, we've got red, red stoplights, but if the police are chasing someone, that is more important, or an ambulance is going to the hospital, that is more important, and they can override the stoplight. And so in any system of law, you have a hierarchy where some laws are more important than others and override the major laws, override the minor laws. You know, if somebody's about to die, you don't worry about the parking restrictions. You know, it's, it's, it's this hierarchy. And what Jesus is pointing out that this hierarchy existed in the law of Moses and they would accept that the, the Sabbath law wasn't as important as the circumcision law. The circumcision law was about the promise of a new creation. God is one day is going to bring something completely new. It was like a, a uh, a pointer towards that. And Jesus is saying, I'm actually bringing in the new, like I'm bringing in life from the death. Here's a man that I healed on the Sabbath. And, you know, he was like withered up and dying and I brought him life. And, you know, isn't that more important than the Sabbath on the hierarchy? Of course it is. He says, verse 24, do not judge according to external appearance, but judge with right judgment. So in other words, um, this is something you need to be, you, you, you claim you're following Moses, but you're not even following Moses. You need to judge correctly. So that's the, uh, that's the first two scenes we've done now. The scene before the feast, the scene in the middle of the feast, and now we have the most important part of our message today, which is the scene at the end of the feast that comes up. Um, and we have a little bit of a preamble, and then we have the announcement of this um, event that happens. So before we do that, um, I would just like to talk a little bit about the about water. Um, so I'd like to talk about the feast. So Leviticus 23 tells us what they did at this feast. On the 15th day of the seventh month, when you gather in the produce of the land... You must celebrate a pilgrim feast festival of the Lord for seven days. On the first day is a complete rest, and on the eighth day is a complete rest. On the first day, you must take for yourselves branches from majestic trees, palm branches, branches of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you must rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. And then uh, there's another uh, section about it in Haggai. Um, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the Lord spoke again through the prophet Haggai. And I skip those verses. Moreover, the Lord who rules over all says, in just a little while, I will once again shake the sky and the earth and the sea and the dry ground. I will also shake up the nations and they will offer their treasures. Then I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord who rules over all. Or I should have mentioned, Haggai the prophet is saying this at this feast, at this feast, but centuries later, uh, 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 as the feast has been reenacted. Um, 
Verse 7, I will also shake up the nations. They will offer their treasures. Then I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord who rules over all. I will fill this temple with glory. The silver and gold will be mine, says the Lord who rules over all. The future splendor of the temple will be greater than all of former times. The Lord who rules over all declares, and in this place I will give peace. Well, what's spoken in these verses was on exactly the same spot that Jesus said these words. Exactly the same place. More than 600 years, sorry, more than 500 years earlier on exactly the same day of the year. So he is making this prophecy that one day God's glory is going to fill this place. And this, of course, was carried out in this moment we've just read about. So what happened during this feast? It was a feast that really celebrated the time in the wilderness and particularly water. And Isaiah uh, 12 talks about it. Um, and it says, uh, I'll just read verse 3, Joyfully you will draw water from the springs of deliverance. This is one of the verses they would read during the feast when they were celebrating it. Um, and uh, let me actually, I'm just going to read you a description of some of the things that would happen during this feast, during these seven days. Um, on the seven days of the feast, that's the first seven, a golden flagon was filled with water from the pool of Siloam, and was carried in a procession led by the high priest back to the temple. As the procession approached the water gate on the south side of the inner court, three blasts from the trumpet were made. While people watched, the priest went around the altar with the flagon, and the temple choir began to sing Psalms 113 through to Psalm 118. When they reached Psalm 118, all of the people there shook their um, what they were carrying, which was supposed to be uh, willow and myrtle twigs and palm, and they would shake these branches and with one hand, and they'd have a piece of citrus fruit in the other to symbolize being the thanksgiving from the harvest. And they would give thanks to God. Then the water was offered to God, and it was poured out, onto the ground to symbolize and to symbolize the spirit being poured out in the last day. And that would happen, um, that, that event would happen, be completed on the seventh day, which would be the Saturday, well, sorry, the Friday, because Saturday is the Sabbath. So on the last day, which was the eighth day, it was actually finished. It was like a rest at the end of the feast. And so Jesus is actually, instead of them pouring the water, Jesus is getting up and saying, actually, we're going to have an even better feast going today because I'm going to do something which is all these things are symbolizing. Um, okay, here's another, another um, quote from the Old Testament. The original Feast of Tabernacles happened, sorry, the original, it was happened to commemorate leaving Egypt, coming out of slavery, and going to the promised land. And that coming out of slavery to the promised land, they were sustained by God moment by moment during that time. And as Israel went through hard times because of their sin, they were taken into Babylon, 
in captivity, and then the Romans were oppressing them, they, the prophets told them there was going to be a new exodus, a new coming out of slavery, a new breaking of the power of slavery, coming to freedom, coming to the promised land. And when the prophets gave them that prophecy, they used the image of water. And here's an example. Leave Babylon, flee from the Babylonians, announce it with a shout of joy, make this known, proclaim it throughout the earth. Say the Lord protects his servant Jacob. They do not thirst as he leads them through dry regions. He makes water flow out of a rock for them. He splits open a rock and water flows out. You see the imagery? This connection between water flowing from the rock and coming and freedom from slavery, freedom from oppression, is so closely woven in the prophets. And Jesus is tapping into this. They would know this. They would have this imagery in their mind, and they're celebrating it in front of themselves at the Feast of Shelters. So the image of water coming freely poured out and freedom from slavery is there. I've got another little video I want to show you. Uh, This is a video from Botswana. And I just think it's an inspiring video about water. So if we can have... This water had come all the way from the Angolan highlands. And over time, it had worked its way through the Okavango and had overflowed into the Buteti. flowed in the contours of the land. The sand was thirsty. There we go. I just thought, uh, I love that clip. And it's so graphic for the image of water bringing life. And water bringing life to to human and animal, it's coming in. And and, uh, and so this is the image I want you to get, that, that water is life. And in the dryness, There's death and the water is just bringing freedom and life. And so Jesus is using this, this language. He's, he's tapping in to this metaphor, to these ideas as he, um, as he speaks these words. So, um, let's, uh, let's just go and just pull this together. Um, my overview, Feast of Shelters, we've been talking about water theology, we're about to now, and then we're going to talk about being thirsty. Water theology. So here it is. Um, the theme of water has got strong roots in the Hebrew minds. When they were Israelites, they, they were brought up uh, out of Egypt, and then after a few days, they'd run out of water, and they said, we're going to die, and God told Moses to strike the rock and water came flowing out of this rock. God provided water from a rock and then that was taken up in the songs of Israel. Um, the the uh, language of Israel was filled with those songs. Uh, so for example, Psalm 78, he brought streams out of the rock, rivers of water. Psalm 105, he opened the rock and waters gushed out. So it was a symbol of freedom and of new life. And even the Apostle Paul talks about this rock that was with them in the wilderness was a picture of Jesus Christ. He says, for they were all drinking from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. 
So the idea then, this water theology, is there will be a new water on the dry ground, a new life, something new of being breaking from the the power of, of slavery into freedom. And so what I'd like to do then is to go back to our passage, go back to your sheets and read what, has, what Jesus says then. Bring, now we've got a context, what it means. Let's read it. Um, so we start at verse 25. Then some of the residents of Jerusalem began to, to say, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Yet here he is speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. Do the ruling authorities really know that this man is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. Whenever the Christ comes, no one will know where he comes from. When Jesus, so they, they're saying, um, you know, we don't, he, we know where he's from. He's from Galilee. Um, and, um, but so he can't be the Christ. Now, of course, John is writing this for us, and there's a kind of irony, because John knows that we know that this isn't true. So he knows that we, as we're reading this, we know, of course, Jesus came from Bethlehem. But at the time, they 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 weren't, you know, they were trying to make excuses for why Jesus couldn't be the Savior. Then Jesus, while teaching in the temple courts, cried out, you both know me and know where I'm from? And how I have not come on my own initiative, but the one who sent me is real. You do not know him, but I know him because I've come from him and he sent me. In other words, you really don't know about where I'm from. And then you have the arrest, attempted arrest. So they tried to seize Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Yet many of, by the way, that expression, his time had not yet come, um, literally, his hour had not yet come. When John uses that word, that expression, he always talks about the hour of Jesus' um, death and resurrection. That was his hour. Uh, many of the crowd believed in him and said, whenever the Christ comes, he won't perform mirac- more miraculous signs than this man, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things about Jesus, so the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Well, a little later we see the officers returning, and this kind of brackets this middle section. And this is the key section in the passage. Then Jesus said, I will be with you for only a little while longer, then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jewish leaders said to one another, where is he going to go that we cannot find him? He is not going to the Jewish people dispersed among the Greeks and teach the Greeks this. What does he mean by saying, you will look for me, but will not find me where you're going, I cannot come? Then here we have the central statement of the passage. On the last day of the feast, the greatest day, and this was the greatest day because it was the culmination, it was it was the eighth day, it was like the second Sabbath, it went from Sabbath to Sabbath, but this was the day where um, they'd kind of cut, done all the stuff of the feast and they just rested, and it was the, the day of rest at the end, so it's why it's called the greatest day. And they'd done with the pouring of the water, but now Jesus now says he is the one. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and let him drink the one who believes in me. I've, I've 
put the word order that way round because that's exactly how it is in the original. Uh, it's just slightly awkward in English, but it's, um, it's important to see the way it is because it's almost poetic and it's got um, one thing that, a first line that leads to the second line. So the first line says, if anyone is thirsty, the second says, let him drink. The first line says, come to me, and the second is, believe in me. And that's an important progression. And we're going to end up by looking at that. So that's the, that's the central verse in this whole passage in terms of Jesus' teaching. Just as the scripture says, from within him will flow rivers of living water. Now that's not an exact quote from anywhere in the Old Testament. It, what Jesus has done is taken the teaching from the Old Testament and if we had time I'd go through and show you the verses and he's put them together into that. Now he said this about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were going to receive for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now let's just um, have a look. And the next verse I was going to show you. On that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine. The hills will flow with milk. All the dry stream beds of Judah will flow with water. A spring will flow out of the temple of the Lord, watering the valley of the acacia trees. That sounds very much like our video we just saw. After all of this, I will pour out my spirit on all kinds of people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your elderly men will have revelatory dreams. Your young men will see prophetic visions. So Jesus is pulling quotes like this together into this statement that he's making. When they heard these words, some of the crowd began to say, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But still others said, no, for the Christ doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Doesn't the scriptures say that the Christ is a descendant of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David lived? So there's a division among them. Some were wanting to seize him, but no one laid hand on him. And now we have the, the, uh, the officers who were sent to arrest him come back. Um, Pharisees say, why didn't you bring him back with you? And they said, never did a human being speak like this one. And the Pharisees said, you haven't been deceived, have you? None of the members of the ruling council of the Pharisees have believed him, have they? But this rabble who don't know the law are accursed. And then we've got a reference to Nicodemus. The first time he's mentioned since chapter 3. Nicodemus, who'd gone to Jesus before and who was one of the rulers, said, Our Lord doesn't condemn a man until it first hears from him and learns what he is doing, does it? They replied, You aren't from Galilee too, are you? Investigate carefully, and you'll see that no prophet comes from Galilee. You may be wondering why they're saying these negative things about Galilee. What happened was, um, sometime before Jesus was born, there was a big political reorganization and a whole lot of people were moved, non-Jews, from another part of, of the land to the area of Galilee. And they were, they would move there for political reasons and they were forcibly told they had to follow Jewish customs and Jewish religion. So they, uh, they became, uh, uh, ethnically Jews, sorry, not ethnically Jews, religiously Jews. They would celebrate all of the, the festivals and so on, but they were not ethnically descended from Abraham. Now, that's not a problem because um, 
right even in the law, it's quite possible for somebody to become a Jew as a follower of God, but not be, not be a descendant of Abraham. So, for example, Rahab was like that. Ruth was like that. People could join the nation and become followers of God. But um, these people, the Galileans, weren't true Jews in terms of tracing their inheritance back to Abraham. So they really despised. They weren't as bad as Samaritans, but they were halfway to Samaritans. And so the idea that these people, these were like Galileans, and Jesus deliberately picked his disciples from Galileans. People who were ethnically looked down on, despised, they weren't the right, right race. And they were looked at, and Jesus deliberately picked most of his disciples from them. Levi was a Levite, and so he would have been one of the 12 tribes, but some of the others were. But people like James and John were Galileans. And so this was the stigma that they had. Now, of course, Jesus was born of the line of Abraham because he was born in Bethlehem, but they didn't know this. So um, this is this is the... Uh, the backdrop, the background to everything that's happening here. Uh, the, there's also the idea of the new creation, the river of the Garden of Eden, as water is a symbol of the creation, and so the streams of water, salvation, and the exodus. There we go, the context in John. So I'm just going to try and pull things together now and really focus on how we can respond to this message. So Jesus is constantly connecting himself with what was happening to the Israelites in the wilderness. So he's the new Moses. He's greater than Moses. He's going to lead them out of captivity. Uh, For example, he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the son of man must be lifted up. Uh, If you believe Moses, you'd believe me because he wrote about me. And then feeding of the 5,000, of course, like the parallel with manna. It's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven, but my father is giving you the true bread from heaven. And then he talks about one greater than Moses in the verses we saw. I perform one miracle. You're all amazed. However, because Moses gave you the practice of circumcision, you circumcise a male child on the Sabbath. Um, why are you angry with me? Because I made a man completely whole on the Sabbath. So you have to understand that to the Jews, Moses was almost equal to God. Like he was just such an amazing figure. And so um, now you can maybe understand why they wanted to kill him. Because here's this man who's putting himself in Moses' shoes, but doing better than Moses, infinitely better than Moses in every place. And he's claiming, behind this, he's claiming, I'm the one who's going to lead you out of captivity to the promised land. I'm the one who's going to sustain you on the way. I'm My body is the food you're going to eat, and I'm going to give you living water to drink because I am going to sustain you on the way to this place that we're going. So here's the imagery, and often the Christian life is pictured like this. We're on a journey. We're going to heaven, but we're not there yet. Right now, we're in the struggle of the wilderness. Not everything is, is, is beautiful. Not everything is good. Do any of you have struggle-free lives? No. We understand the experience. We've come out of captivity, if we're a Christian, but we're not in the promised land yet. And we, and so this is the picture. This is what Jesus is calling us to. He's saying, 
I'm the one who can take you from, from captivity, from slavery to freedom, and I can quench your thirst. As on the way, as on the journey, you go through times of thirstiness, times of desperateness, I'm the one who can pour this life-giving water on you, and you feel so refreshed, and you just feel that refreshment flowing over you. We can look back at the those days, and we can say, did people thirst in those days in a spiritual sense? Well, yeah, we have that woman of Samaria, don't we, who was thirsting. And we have, um, he offered her the drink. Are people thirsting today? We have, I would say that never has the world promised so much and delivered so little. Never has the world promised so much and delivered so little. We have a world with increasing mental health illness problems, with, with suicides, depression. We have divorce. We have violence. We have drugs and all kinds of other addictions. We've got these increasing because it's a world in which there is such dryness. There's such a desperate need for this thirst to be met. And if in those days they were thirsty, in these days the thirst is even greater. And Jesus is holding himself up as the answer. I can take you, if you're in slavery, I can take you out of slavery. I can bring you into freedom. Anything in your life where you're not free, I'm the one who can unlock your freedom and bring you out. Um, he, he says, I have my spirit. My spirit is life from the dead. My spirit is this new creation. Um, so I want to ask you the question then, how do you respond to this? What do we do? How do we follow this? Well, Jesus says the two things that we saw on the list. He says, come to him and believe in him. And I want to say to you that, that those, that is really summarized very simply. We come to him in prayer. We come, we can't physically come because he's not here, but we can just as easily or more easily come to him in prayer and say, um, Jesus, I am thirsty. Jesus, I am thirsty and I need you. And then believe in him and believe in him means to, to follow his teaching, to follow what he says, to stop looking for the things we try to satisfy ourselves with and to seek him for our satisfaction. Um, if you're already following Jesus and you feel dry and you want more of the water, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. If you, If this morning you're feeling dryness in your life, Jesus is calling out to you now. Come to me. I want you to have that cool, refreshing water just poured over you. I want those dry places in you to be refreshed and full of life. I'm going to get the worship team to come out now. But I want to end with a couple of amazing verses which summarize this. Um, Let's get past this. Um, Isaiah 55 and... The verses one and two. <clears throat> come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. 
Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. And then uh, a quote from the end of Revelation. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. This is the end of the Bible, right at the end of the Bible. This is how it closes. I read that again. Come, let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. I want to challenge you this morning. I don't think there's anyone here that would say, I've no areas of dryness in my life. I am just as fully, everything is wonderful. There's, if you're saying that, I, I think you're probably lying. Because you don't really get that until we're at the promised land. And I want to, I'd like us to respond to this message now. Maybe everybody could stand. And, uh, and if you want to, if you feel that you want to, you can pray with me. And pray that God will give you water in whatever part of your life where you're feeling dry. Jesus, we thank you that you offer us yourself as the living water. And you say, come to me. And Jesus, we come to you now. You say, if anyone's thirst, Jesus, we thirst. We're dry. We need you, Jesus, now. We're thirsty for you. We come to you now. And you say, he believes in me, let him drink. Lord, we believe. We want to follow you. you want to, we want to make you the Lord of our life. We want to make you the one who, who is the ruler of our life. Lord, give us this drink now, Lord. Pour your living water over us. Lord, we cry, Lord, for each of us. Lord, you know the areas we're struggling in. Lord, pour your water over us. We know that you see us, you care, you're with us. Lord, we ask it in your power. Amen.